This is episode number 184, Epic Rides with Todd Sadow. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. For us, the objective is to give mountain biking a place to go as a sport, to look to as a leader, and to provide beginner pro and amateur in between a definitive mountain bike experience. to say, yes, I've done an Epic Rides event or I've won an Epic Rides event. I think we celebrate the pros the way we do because we want to be that platform for them. I'm stoked you guys are here. And today we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, mountain biking and endurance mountain bike racing. I personally am getting pretty antsy to start racing my bike again. I'm someone that usually races nine months out of the year. And instead, I've been spending nine months pregnant. So I'm excited to have my first race back in May and it's coming up soon. And I also am hoping to get out to some of the Epic Rides events this year as well. Speaking of Epic Rides, let's just jump right in. So Todd Sadow founded Epic Rides back in 1999 and produced the inaugural 24 Hours in the Old Pueblo with 176 participants in attendance. And that event just happened. Sadly, I wasn't there this year. But last year, Gordon Wadsworth and I won the duo category. And we also won the overall duo category. I've done that race several times on a four and five person team as well. And it's just a really great time there out in the desert. It's still one of the only longstanding 24 hour races left. And as a former 24 hour world champion, I'm super stoked that this event is still alive. And not only is it alive, it's just a party in the desert. It's awesome. Since then, 1999, Epic Rides has grown into one of the most successful mountain bike event promotion companies in North America, and they've done just such an amazing job, and I was so excited to sit down with Todd because I've known him forever. In fact, I think the Whiskey 50 was my first ever 50-mile race, and I don't remember what year off the top of my head, but I mentioned it in the show when I first went, and it was a really tiny event back then. And it's just been amazing to see how everything has grown for this amazing company and the impact that they're having on the sport. Epic Rides so far has six diverse venues in Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and Arkansas that drive from a regional base with worldwide attendees to accent more than 8,500 participants and 60,000 general attendees annually. Those are some big races. And not only are they races, but they're a party atmosphere. So typically on Friday night, there is a pro fat tire crit. So it's great for spectators. Saturday is usually the 50 mile amateur or some of the races are 40 miles, but 40 to 50 mile amateur event. And then Sunday is the pro race. And there's live music. There's a large expo area and the entire community gets involved. Epic Rides has this down to a science and really an alchemy to creating these incredible events. Their priority is to just provide the racer or the rider or even the family members supporting with an experience above and beyond anything they have grown to expect from events in the industry. And their events aren't just a race. They're life-changing for a lot of people. Some things we discussed in the podcast is how Epic Rides evolves and ad races, scaling a race production company in a environment where it seems like a lot of races are shutting down and these guys are actually growing and thriving, attracting newbies and deciding on what course difficulty level to include, 
choosing race locations and community, staying in the lane of mountain biking when there's all these new disciplines of cycling always popping up, equal payout, which they've been doing, and I think they were one of the first to do for men and women in the pro category, the value of a large prize purse and why pros are valuable to the sport. We talked a little bit about USA Cycling, UCI, Ironman, e-bikes, sponsorships, and we also got to your listener questions that you submitted as well. So lots of really interesting things in this episode. Whether you're a racer, a supporter, or even a race promoter, there is a lot here for you. I have all the Epic Rides events listed in the show notes. 24 Hours in the Old Pueblo, Whiskey Off-Road, Grand Junction Off-Road, Carson City Off-Road, Oz Trails Off-Road, and Tour of the White Mountains. So get yourself to one of those races. I think that you'll really be surprised if you've never been to an Epic Rides event, just how awesome they are. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. That way you get notifications every week about the show. And you can do that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And big shout out and thank you to those of you who have been supporting my work financially on Patreon and on PayPal as well. PayPal is a new way to donate to the show and it helps support my team, which is myself, my audio engineer, Roma, and my assistant, Tina, to make sure that this show sounds awesome and that we continue to get the show out on time, have amazing guests and keep it growing. So thank you so much, you guys. Your support means more than you know. And if you want to do other things to support the show, you can take a few seconds and just leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We read those reviews every week and they help other people find the show as well. I also wanted to let you guys know I've launched a new website, plantpoweredtribe.com. And a lot of you have purchased my Plant Powered Tribe digital cookbook that I published last year. And if you haven't gotten it, you can get it at both moxieandgrit.com and at plantpoweredtribe.com. But initially it was a Facebook group and we still have our free Facebook group with thousands of members where people are just posting about healthy habits or healthy meals that they're integrating into their life. And again, you don't have to be plant-based to be a part of this community. It's just about adding in more healthy plant-based foods. And I also started an Instagram account and from there people have just wanted more and more detailed information. So I thought launching plantpoweredtribe.com would be a good place to start. And on there you'll find lots of different resources You'll just find more of a deep dive into plant-based nutrition for athletes. So if you want to get on there, go check it out. Okay, let's get into today's awesome episode with Todd Sadow of Epic Rides. Todd Sadow, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's super exciting. Like, it's 2020. You and I met in 2006 at the Whiskey 50, which I think might have been my first ever like 50-mile mountain bike race. So it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been at this for a little while now, haven't we? Yeah, like how long has Epic Rides been in existence? Epic Rides was founded in May of 1999. It was the, the week that I finished college at the University of Arizona. And our first event was the inaugural 24 Hours in Old Pueblo in 2000. And why did you decide 24-hour racing for your first event? Because that seems logistically like one of the hardest things to put on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it hasn't, you know, it's definitely a different beast from all of our other events. The 24-hour race has a, a layer of complexity because it's staggered races over 24 hours. So there's just multiple starts and multiple finishes across a couple thousand people. But yeah, so why we chose that one. So I co-founded the company with two other people. And really it was more about just getting a foot in the door in the bike industry. And it was really their idea to do a 24-hour race because 24-hour mountain bike events like 24 hours of Moab were 
thriving and, and really flashy and new. And, and the name came from yet a fourth person. And so I kind of stumbled into the whole thing. But after a few years, it became evident that that could turn into a company and it could be the job that I was trying to get my foot in the door with for the industry. And so it's just sort of written itself ever since, you know. And it's funny, like most people wanting to get a job in the industry kind of started a bike shop or, you know, approach a brand. They usually don't start their own business. <laughs> so were you nervous about taking that risk right out of college? Like, I mean, you had some partners, but there's still a lot involved with a startup and partners leaving and then scaling. Yeah, there's been lots of leaps of faith along the way. And I, I wasn't necessarily raised in a, a family or an environment where like entrepreneurial pursuits were desirable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think that I was probably young enough and dumb enough to dive into this thing. And, and I've really grown to be comfortable with the sink or swim piece of it. So I had found a, a really good corporate job out of college that I was doing during the day and then doing epic rides kind of at night and, and moonlighting. And then after the, the third year of the 24 hours in the whole Pueblo, the event had really just blown up. It was up over like 800 riders by the third year. And so that's when I, I made the, the first leap, I suppose. And although very supportive, it wasn't necessarily like, you know, my, my parents weren't like, this is the best thing you can do with your time. <laughs> but I did have an open invitation to go back to the corporate gig if things didn't work out. So I had sort of you know, created a little bit of a parachute. What was the corporate gig? Ironically, it was it is a company out of Chicago called General Growth Properties. And it's a real estate investment trust. And they, you know, I guess, you know, in some ways it might have been the right decision for me. They actually bankrupted back in 08, 09. But they were a multi-billion dollar business up until then. And then when the real estate bust happened, they got really caught square in the middle of it. They might have been like the biggest story of all of it for the failure side of it. And when did you decide to add in, start adding in races? Because a lot of races or race promoters, they have one race that they do and that takes up their entire year. And now it's been a long time, but you guys have scaled to many races. <laughs> was Tour of the White Mountains the, the next one or was it the Whiskey 50 that came next? So actually it was an event that doesn't exist anymore. When I moved back, so I, I was in San Jose, California for General Growth Properties doing epic rides from afar. And when I moved back, by then one partner was gone, one was left, and we had agreed to go full steam with epic rides and we were both quitting our jobs. And then he never really, he quit his job, but they started a different one and he never really fully committed. So we ended up, you know, he, he had much greener opportunities than his other opportunities. So he moved along. And after the third year of the company, fourth year of the company, it was just you know, me driving the ship at that point. And the plan was when I moved back to do this was to add some events and build a, a statewide event, you know, mountain bike event company. And so we added an event called the Soul Ride Next, or I should say I had an event called the Soul Ride Next. And it was a 100-mile mountain bike event, which was sort of the, the next trend after 24-hour racing. And it was awesome. It was really hard. It had, I think, about 14,000 feet of climbing and 100 miles. Tinker Warris showed up the first or second year and knocked it out in like seven, just over seven hours. I mean, it was <laughs> phenomenal. And it was a great event, but we also learned a lot through it as far as what, you know, what was reasonable and attainable and, you know, what would get more people to the start lines and, and allow for some beginners to sort of you know, show up and feel welcome and so forth. And so after the Soul Ride came to Whiskey Off-Road, 
And the soul ride ultimately went away. And when it went away after the fifth year, the tour of the white mountains was acquired. So that's the only event that we produced that we didn't necessarily found. And, uh, yeah, so we ended up with three events. The goal was, it was sort of a five-year plan when I moved back to do this and we ended up, uh, achieving, you know, the, the lofty goals in five year of the five-year plan in about three. And after a couple of years of, um, working hard on the three events and, uh, and you know, thinking about what mountain biking may or may not need, that's when the, the Epic Ride series concept was hatched. And we set out to build a model event around the Whiskey Off-Road in Prescott. To, um, you know, so we expanded it from a one-day event to three days and you know, added a lot of experiences and, and, and camaraderie to it. And, and that's, you know, we set out to sort of prove that that event experience could be you know, desirable for, for mountain biking in America. That took about five years. So I think by now we're probably around you know, 10 to 12 years old at that point. And then we started and then we figured since we'd proven the model in Prescott, we would see if we could replicate it. So then the, the first event outside of the state of Arizona was the Grand Junction Off-Road in Colorado. So yeah, went from one event to three events in Arizona to expanding outside of the state. And now we're in Arizona, Colorado, Nevada with the Carson City Off-Road and Arkansas with the Oz Trails Off-Road, which is uh, six events and <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, whenever you grow like that, I, I mean, I know it's been gradual and that you had a template that you knew worked, but you, you have to have a team of people helping you and you have to have like local people in those communities that want to help you. you. There's permitting, there's the marketing aspect, there's adding people to your team and knowing who the right people are. Can you talk a little bit about how you scaled? Because if, if, if there's other race promoters listening and they're thinking, well, I want to go from one to two events or one or two to five events, like how do I scale this and how do I build a team and put the right people in place, like around the country even? You know, it's no secret that people are the most critical piece. You, know, you can automate a lot of things and and I won't, I won't ever argue that the smartphone was you know, my first, second person at, at the office. But really, it's critical to have a good team and to be able to delegate so that, you know, there's, every event has a lot of moving pieces. So scaling Epic Rides from our first event to you know, now six events uh, across the country, it's really heavily reliant upon the people and the teams that we have in place, both here in, in Tucson and in each community. Each event has a local event manager that oversees the operations of the event and also is empowered to build a, a local committee. And that allows each event to have a very um, sort of hyper-local feel for the mountain biker in that region. And, and really, we feel like the key to our success is that every event be a local experience. So you know, we want all of our participants to know where the local coffee shop is that's preferred by mountain bikers and, and the local watering holes and and also not just the course trails, but all the great trails in the community so that when they come in on event weekend, they get to have a really uh, 360 cultural sort of mountain bike cultural experience for that community. And so our teams for each event are, are critical. And as far as you know, growing you know, one event at a time, it's, it's really relying upon just empowering each person on the team, whether they're here in Tucson or in each market, to, to have what they need to do their job and to, to be able to enjoy the process. 
Yeah. And there's just, I've been learning this as I've been trying to grow all of my projects and just like the amount of trust you have to have as you delegate, like, cause you're giving away control. And in some cases, the consequences can be quite dire if, if the person you're delegating to makes a mistake. Um, so how did you let go? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. People ask me that. And I, I think that, you know, one is, is most importantly, is you let go because the person that you've empowered to do it, you trust can do it. And if they give you a reason to think otherwise, then of course you need to take a closer look. But when it's come time for me to let go of different aspects of the company, I'm usually so ready to let go that I just let go. <laughs> it's been, it's been over 20 years. And so, you know, I've, I've undoubtedly done everything a time or two and, and I've got my own opinion of how to do it. But you know, I heard somewhere that in the process of building a company, the first, oftentimes some of the first round of people that you hire, you're just happy to have people that will help. And then by the second or third round of people that are joining you, you're hiring people that are blatantly better than you at it. And, and you hope that they are and that they'll come in and, and not just do what you've, what you've built or done in the past, but they'll do it better. And, and I think that's very much where we are with Epic Rides now at this point is we're, we're adding people to the team that are phenomenal. And, and I love watching them do what they do because, you know, I look at it and think, you know, sure, there's a little bit of what we've always done in there, but there's also this, this added element of quality that, you know, I know I never would have come up with. Come up with. So, you know, I think the, the delegating can be really rewarding in that regard. So you mentioned that the, the 100 mile race, the soul, what was it called? Soul? Soul ride. Soul ride. Um, that it, it wasn't very attractive to newbies because it was so hard. So whenever you're creating new courses or evaluating existing courses, how do you know how hard to make the event? And then I know that you have different distances. How do you market and attract newbies? Because having the same people come who are like been racing for a long time is one thing. But uh, I think that as a race promoter and somebody who's passionate about mountain biking, like getting new people into the sport of racing is really exciting. So getting those people to sign up for their first race is really powerful. So like, how do you market to them and how do you make those courses the right amount of difficulty? <laughs> uh, that's funny. We, we laugh sometimes about how, and, or we laugh at the feedback we get that our, our fun ride, which is usually about 15 miles, sometimes isn't very fun to people. <laughs> <laughs> but we also pride ourselves on giving people a very authentic mountain bike experience. So you know, we don't want to water it down. We don't want it to just be a bunch of maintained pads that are, you know, untechnical and unmountain bikey in nature. We want people so that whenever they've completed, whether it's you know, any of the three distances we offer, which is oftentimes 15, 30 or 50 miles, we want them, no matter which distance they completed, to feel like they're a bona fide mountain biker. And so, you know, the thinking behind, you know, whether it's attainable or not is it's very, is it, is it objective, I guess, is the word based on the person. But we have a very high finishing percentage rate, usually over 90 percent for our, our beginner rides. And it's not because they're easy. It's because the, the people that are signing up have the constitution to complete it. And, and we want to give them an experience that will both very much challenge them and also give them equal parts reward. And, and you know, one of the things that we tend to say around here at Epic Rides is that you know, we want to give them at least a, a one to two week window after they've ridden in the event to feel like they're floating on a cloud 
and are making good life decisions because they finished that event, they finished that ride. And so, you know, we don't have a, a specific criteria. Um, we do know that when we pre-ride something and it's too hard, that we'll own it and say, all right, this is probably just too much for the beginner level person. But we have all types of people showing up to our events these days from, from young teenagers and maybe even preteen to uh, seniors to, you know, all, all types of body types and styles and, and fitness levels that, you know, will show up and it might take them five, six hours to do 15 miles, but they feel amazing afterwards. And when they're done, they know that they can go home and tell their friends, I'm a mountain biker for life. <laughs> That's so cool. I love that. And the tagline of Epic Rides is a good day on a bike. So regarding these newbies, how do you, how do you find them? Because do you rely on like the local communities to find these people? Cause people are traveling from all over the country and in some cases from other countries to come to your events and the marketing of events can be quite tricky, especially, and I'm sure that's evolved over the years as well, but where the people are, where are the newbies? How are you getting them to feel confident enough to even sign up for these races? Yeah, there's, there's people in every community that are looking to get into mountain biking. They're curious about it, and they're, there's, a, there's a lot to take in to become a mountain biker, right? Just the thought of going out and purchasing a bike, it's, you know, they're not inexpensive. Even at an entry level, it's still a significant amount of, of, of money. And so to go out and, and have you know, generally no real idea of what you're looking at, uh, there's suspension involved. <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of technology in bikes these days. And so um, we really just wanted to market to the masses and, and, and make our events look accessible to them and you know, be very receptive and responsive to inquiries. And you know, oftentimes we find ourselves pointing people that they might start with, hey, I've heard about this and I want to do it because I'm curious about mountain biking. And so it's not, you know, I became a mountain biker and then I've found your events. Instead, they're kind of, you know, we're this, we're this thing out there that's kind of shiny and, and has a profile so they can bump into us pretty easily. And, and so it's not uncommon for us to point them towards local bike shops in their market or local advocacy groups and clubs um, to help them get started. And, and to sort of give them a, a roadmap to a start line at one of our events. Um, you know, rarely, if ever, are we going to, you know, someone who calls the week before the whiskey off-road say, well, hey, you know, next Friday, there's going to be a start line on Whiskey Row, you know, <laughs> show up. Um, we're, you know, we want people to have success. That's our, our number one priority is that everyone makes it to the finish line. And, and so, you know, people come from, from all avenues, I think, with social media these days. You know, you see you see cool photos of mountain biking. You, you you end up going down an Instagram hole, and then you somehow they find their way to our our feed, and then you know, and then there you go. We end up with an email or a direct message, and and we go from there. You know. And I keep hearing the word local in whenever you speak, and I know that Epic Rides really drastically and positively affects local communities in donating money to the local trail organizations, and also just bringing people to those communities and putting it on the map. And I also know that you guys, it's, or it seems like you guys are targeting like smaller towns that want to be mountain bike destinations. Um, so what, what have been some things that you look for whenever you're starting a new event? Because I'm sure that people come to you every single day saying, Hey, like my town is awesome. You should start a race here. Or why don't you start a race here? And there's so many amazing places to mountain bike in the USA, like how do you choose these local communities? 
First, our goal is to ultimately have a national series of mountain bike events. And so we'd like to have an event in each region. So right now we're, we're, we're definitely targeting the Midwest, uh, East Coast, and the Northwest, because those are our, our, un, you know, our unpopulated areas for our events. But as far as a, an ideal location, the number one thing that I think any event, mountain biking or otherwise, needs is the community to walk. So you know, we learned that if a, community, if a community is not leaning into the event and the experience, then it makes it really hard to have success. And success, like you just mentioned, should result in the community having uh, financial gains. I mean, just to be point blank, these things you know, have to make money for the local community. And, and if they do, then everyone should be really happy. And you know, part of that proving the model for us back in the day with the Whiskey Off-Road um, you know, the whiskey off-road was not a mountain bike, or Prescott was not a mountain bike community at all. And, and it was really gratifying to see it evolve and go from, you know, a community that had a few mountain bikers, which are the ones that sort of recruited us and showed us a course that was way too hard, to, <laughs> um, to seeing the Forest Service get on board with the event and realize the value it could bring and seeing the, you know, Prescott Mountain Bike Alliance be born there and, and you know, as a product of the event happening and building a community around it to the Arizona high school mountain bike league, a chapter of NICA, um, having, um, almost as many kids in Prescott riding on teams, mountain bike teams as they have in Phoenix. So there's, you know, there's a lot that should come from it for each community, but if they don't want those things, if they don't value those things, then, you know, that's the first you know, criteria that's not satisfying. That would, it would be a very, be a very destructive, very challenging environment to be in. So we look for community support and interest. Of course, trails are critical. You know, we can market all we want, but if the ride itself isn't fun, if it's not high caliber mountain biking, if it's not stuff that'll stretch people a little bit and, and show them amazing quality trails, then it's, it's probably not worth going into. You know, these days, you're right, we get, we get contacted frequently. And there's some really good communities that have been reaching out to us, but Sometimes they're in markets that we're already in, you know, even if it's a state away, it's still in that market generally. And so we're, you know, we're, we're unfortunate to say no more than we say yes these days. Yeah, that'd be so hard to make those decisions. Like, is there a certain radius or driving distance that you guys look at? Because I'm sure you look at your people that are registering for these races and looking where they're coming from, too, to make these decisions, right? Yeah, people come from all over the place. I mean, you know, the average Epic Ride Series event, uh, like I said, we're in Prescott, Grand Junction, Carson City, Nevada, and Bentonville, Arkansas. And the average event has, you know, roughly 35 to 40 states in the USA represented and upwards of 10 to 12 countries on average. People come from everywhere. The touch states for any one event and where it's located tend to be the most reliable, but, you know, it just depends on the region too, because you get into some of these other regions where the states are smaller and there's more touch states or, you know, the thing that I've been completely blown away by in Bentonville is the, the distance people will travel to get to Northwest Arkansas for their trials there. I mean, we've got a huge percentage of people that come from the Midwest when you're getting into like, you know, 10 to 15 hour drive times. <laughs> and, you know, they're coming down on, on Friday and, you know, riding their, their brains out Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, with the event being one of the days. And then they head back and it's like, you know, I guess a lot of them will extend their stay too, but yeah, as far as like criteria go, we're just, we're looking at, you know, mountain bike populations within touch states, things like that. 
Yeah, I, I've never been to Bentonville and I'm actually planning on coming this year. But I remember when I lived in Colorado, like we would drive to Arkansas. There's like a couple races there, the Washita and the Silamo, And we would drive to Arkansas to ride. And I remember the first time going there thinking to myself, why are we going to Arkansas? <laughs> and now I've done like nationals there. I've, I've ridden all those races and the riding there is amazing. And I love the people there too. So I, I'm, I can't wait to check out Bentonville. And because of you guys, I've heard so many great stories about that area. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you're, you're on board with it. It's pretty special what they're doing there. It's certainly very original and their terrain. It's almost like they have a blank slate. You know, they've got this beautiful mountainous terrain that, I think it really didn't have a reputation beforehand. So now all of a sudden with a clean slate, they get to say, you know, this is phenomenal mountain biking. Come check it out. And I wanted to ask about trail user groups because I've done some interviews, not, not for the podcast, but just for some articles I've written, just talking about why it's so hard for different user groups to get along and to have a race series and that that's successful where you're allowed to keep using the same land every year there has to be a lot of agreement among these user groups and even landowners. So have you bumped into any issues and how did you resolve those? The best solution to trail user disagreements is to include all the trail users in the dialogue and even the experience. So this is purely an opinion and it's what I've found to work for us. But if we go into a community and they have user conflict, which is less and less these days, I think that you know, mountain bikers are very pronounced in their willingness to contribute to volunteer efforts and, and advocacy efforts that other trail users are respecting. But if there is trail user disagreements or conflict, we tend to go to those entities and say, hey, can we make you part of the event? You know, is there a way for you to, to come in and enjoy event weekend with everybody else, knowing that we all have these trails in common? And so far, it's worked really well. <laughs> I think people get afraid of of the unknown, right? And so if they don't understand mountain biking because they're a hiker or an equestrian or, or otherwise, then that it's easy to stay bothered by it and, and let that fuel their fire. But the moment that everyone becomes familiar with each other and they realize that we're all passionate about the same thing, you know, access and, and quality trails and, and maintaining the trails, then it tends to diffuse most of the, the concerns. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And also, <laughs> How do you stay focused on your bread and butter? Like you guys have carved out this niche of having an amazing, successful race series and festival atmosphere, which we'll talk about that in a little bit with these distances, but Enduro popped up, you know, several years ago and, and, and took off and now like <laughs> gravel is huge and everybody's talking about it. So have you thought about branching out into Enduro or gravel and, and, it's highly romanticized and I can't, I've never done a gravel race and I want to check it one out just for the community aspect to see it. But like, how do you decide to stay focused? Is it hard? Uh, no, <laughs> um, <laughs> those are all awesome, but like enduro is really cool and, and where it's taken mountain biking is very interesting and certainly pushed the technology boundaries. And, and I think it's been a big factor for the sport over the last decade. And gravel, like you said, is just blowing up. It's amazing. But we're mountain bikers at Epic Rides. We're backcountry mountain bikers. And our, from the onset or the outset of this whole initiative to produce a national series that the whole industry can get behind and to do that by creating entry for the beginner and for you know giving the seasoned amateur, which you know there's a lot of people like me out there that just want to go out and ride and be challenged and have fun and, 
and to give the pro a platform to feel like a pro, be rewarded like a pro with big cash purses. And like you said, to throw a big old party that mountain bikers, which are pretty social animals, tend to enjoy after their ride or before and after. That was all based on just being authentic. And I think a big part of that is that we stick to our core values. And as these other things pop up, there's other people out there that represent the authenticity of enduro over gravel. And they should be the ones that are producing those events and leading that that tribe or that portion of our tribe. And for us, we just want to make sure that, that mountain biking has an honest place to go and be represented. Or I should say backcountry mountain biking. So it's easy to get caught up chasing these other things that'll pop up. And we certainly could, but that's just not where our, our core values are. You know, The vast majority of people that throw a leg over a top tube of a mountain bike are looking for a backcountry mountain bike ride, whether it's you know five miles on their local trails or you know, 50 or 100 miles. And so that's what, who we're, we're aiming for. I think that something that you just said is really helpful for people just in general who are trying to make decisions because we are so incredibly lucky with where we live and the amount of opportunity that we have that we can pretty much do anything that we want. And it's easy to get excited and swept away by a thousand ideas. I want to try everything. And you said that you make these decisions based on your core values as a company and as a human. And this is something I've heard repeatedly on the podcast about people who have been doing really rad things is that they make decisions based on those core values. So it requires the clarity to know what that is, because it can be really hard sometimes whenever you see a financial opportunity or you're just excited about something and you just can get swept away by that. So I think that's awesome that you guys are looking at your core values and saying, this is who we are and you know who you are. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's an important one to keep in perspective. It lets us stay focused and enjoy being gravel participants, right? We, we don't yeah. ride in our own events, so then we get to go to someone else's and enjoy theirs too. So I want to talk about the pros at your events because I think this is something that is really unique that you've done really well. First of all, you guys offer equal payout and has it always been that way or was there something that changed your mind about that or, or maybe industry support that you got? Yeah, so from the first time we ever had a pro category, we paid out equally. And we did it because it just felt like the right thing to do. One of the impetuses for our whole pro category to exist, and that you know that point I made a moment ago about giving the, the pros a real platform to be a pro mountain biker and to treat them as such, that's maybe an ideology that was folded into that, that intention, was to build that environment and to treat everyone equally. You know, years ago, I had gotten wind that a good friend of mine that was one of America's fastest female mountain bikers had you know, done really well at one of America's biggest mountain bike events. And she got a watch and, a, you know, like a, a $20 watch and a check for about 80 bucks. Yeah. And I thought, you've dedicated your life to this sport. You're, you know, you're a very intelligent person. You could have easily left college and gone, gotten a you know, more traditional career that would pay you way more than that. And so I, you know, I thought, man, this, this is an opportunity for mountain biking to pay equally and to you know, show that you know, there's no real reason to have gender biases in this environment. And the next question is, I don't know if it's going to be a hard or an easy question to answer, but the way that a lot of things have gone in the industry, there's like pros and then there's like social media influencers. And then there's also like at races, some races seem to really value pros and pro rider participation or racing. And some races seem to not 
really care if there's a pro field or not, and they don't really do anything to try to have more pros at their race. So they, it seems like they don't see value in having a strong pro field. So for you, why do you think pros are valuable and why do you have the big show for the pros? Well, for us, the objective is to give mountain biking a place to go as a sport, to look to as a leader um, and to provide you know, beginner pro and, and amateur in between a definitive mountain bike experience you know, to say, you know, yes, I've done an Epic Rides event or I've won an Epic Rides event. I think that we celebrate the pros the way we do because we want to be that platform for them. You know, they weren't getting it elsewhere. And so we set out to introduce and provide that opportunity for the pro mountain biker in America and in time, hopefully uh, globally, right? You know, the pros I think should be celebrated. They are fully committed to the sport, whereas a lot of amateurs are weekend warriors and it's their their blow-off valve for a busy week and a busy life. And so the pro gives all of us as amateurs a chance to aspire, to appreciate what you know fully committed human can do with, with a mountain bike. And they also push the boundaries of all of our parts and, and accessories so that we know when we go out to the local bike shop and buy something that we're getting quality products. And so, you know, I think there's there's a lot that they contribute to this industry and for that reason they deserve to be celebrated. Yeah, thank you for that too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, glad. <gladly. laughs> I wanted to ask about this. So pros and amateurs, if they're doing the 40 or the 50, depending on which race it is, they're doing the same course. So the amateurs get to do the same course as the pros. What made you guys decide on that? And what, what do you think the value is in them doing the same course? Well, I think it, it maybe to, to revisit that last answer, right? There is nothing more humbling than going out and pushing your boundaries on Saturday and, uh, you know, the 30 or 50 mile or 30 or 40 mile through Grand Junction distance being completely tapped out, like a shell of a human at the finish line, completely satiated and gratified, you know, floating on a little bit of a cloud and then wake up the next day and to see a pro go out and knock two hours off your time. (laughs) (laughs) Even between Uh, like the pro men and the pro women, it's like, oh my gosh, like that guy was an hour faster than me. Oh, yeah. Well, no, pro men and pro women, the leaders tend to be about 20 to 30 minutes apart, which isn't much. <laughs> um, it's phenomenal. It's I think, again, it's a very humbling thing. And as, as part of our event experiences go, the 15s will also ride a lot of the same trails. So with apps like, say, Strava out there, you can Strava your ride and then look at how everyone's performance shakes out over the weekend. And it's it's just humbling. It's it's cool to be to see what someone else can do on the same trail as you in the same segment or for the full loop. You know, if anything, it serves as a reminder by the end of the weekend that, you know, life is good and my career choices are probably fitting, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the value of the pro purses are, are quite large at the events. How do you decide how much that should be? And I mean, you guys, the organization could choose to pocket half that money or, or you know, 80% of that money. So how do you decide to set that pro purse out there? Yeah, that there are no strings to that money. We could do whatever we want with it. It is it is purely a, a decision by Epic Rides that we want to provide this experience and this service to the industry, and therefore this is how we're going to spend these dollars. Each purse at the Whiskey Off-Road, the Grand Junction Off-Road, and the Carson City Off-Road is $30,000. And again, it's split equally, so 15000 to the men, 15000 to the women. We pay 12 deep with first place taken home 5000 and then at the Oz Trails Off-Road in Bentonville, it's 60000 So it's a double purse 
It's the championship event. There's also a points component to the series for the pros. So they accumulate points for the overall, toward the overall, which is another $10,000 purse for the overall. And in Benville, at $60,000, we pay 20 deep. So the first place person, male and female, each get $10,000. We've identified that you know our budget allows for $30,000 at the qualifying events. It allows for $60,000 at Oz Trails Off-Road. The goal, the long term, as we are uh, finding greater success and growth with the company, we'd very much like to ramp our 30000 per event up to fifty, And we'd like to see the Austro's off-road go from 60 to 100. So, you know, there's still plenty out there for us to, to do and to achieve in order to get to those numbers. But that's the big picture, the big picture vision, I suppose. You know, there was a day, you know, back in the early uh, 2000s or, yeah, the early 2000s, I guess, if you look at a lot of the successful pro road cyclists came from mountain biking. And if you look at, say, you know, triathlon as well, there was this migration away from mountain biking. The biggest and best example would be Cadell Evans, right? He was a world champion at like 18 years old on mountain biking, ultimately went over to the Tour de France and won there, right? And was a very successful, had a very successful road career. So we need to be compelling from a discipline standpoint to, to retain mountain bikers and the talent in this side so that we're seeing the, the highest quality racing at our events. And at $50,000 per qualifier event and 100000 for the championship, that should result in world-class talent at each finish line. And that's pretty exciting to, to see and to think about. Yeah, and something that I think is interesting and cool about the 50-mile distance is that someone who's traditionally a World Cup cross-country racer can still come and do really, really well. And likewise, like someone who's more of a 100-mile specialist can still come and have a chance at that distance. It's kind of like a middle ground. Yeah, exactly. There was, you know, back when, back when Sonia, when you, when you came to your first whiskey off-road, there was a pretty big splinter across the sport, you know, or splinters through the sport in that there was, you know, a lot of people doing fast switch, uh, Norba style racing. There was a lot of people consumed with 24 hour relay racing and hundred milers. And, and it was all over the place. And, you know, it seems to be that we've managed to pull everybody back together in this, this sort of middle distance spot it's not two hours it's not five hours for the fastest pros and it allows everybody to show up and and sort of race within their sweet spot yeah so cool so as your event has grown and you know you have these pros coming from all over the place a lot of pros go to races because they're trying to get uci points or you know they're trying to go to usa cycling races for whatever their reasons are have you had pressure from USA Cycling or the UCI to get sanctioned or even pressure from the industry? Because some races, especially abroad that I've done, they think that it's not a real race unless it's a UCI race. And even I, I've heard this from brands with their sponsorships is you're not a real pro unless you're a UCI pro rider, which really ticks me off. <laughs> <laughs> so like, how, how have you dealt with that pressure? Well, I can only point to one instance where there was any element of pressure but thankfully, I think that we're providing a service to the mountain biker in America and especially the pros with our purses to make a, a living as a pro mountain biker that is not being offered to them elsewhere. And so it's really up to the athlete to decide, you know, to hear that sponsors are saying that if it's not, if it doesn't have UCI points, it doesn't qualify is, I guess, unfortunate because I know that our, our actual attendance numbers would suggest that we have a much stronger environment, a uh, stronger platform to market mountain biking. You know, we have real attendance numbers 
not just from the start line perspective, which is, you know, a thousand to 2000 riders on event weekend, but also we have a three to four attendance model because of the, the experience that we provide. People can bring friends and family to our events. So it turns into really sizable audiences plus where we're based in each downtown of each community. So you, know, you end up with you know, 10, 20,000 people over that weekend that brands can reach out to. And so I, I think that, you know, like the, the UCI, they certainly have their cause. You know, the fact that they do service the Olympics needs is, is important. And if, if that's the ultimate goal for the athlete, then they should absolutely go chase UCI points and, and enjoy that pursuit. But, you know, whether they want to come to our events also, which they're welcome to, or, you know, if they find that they might be able to make a better living by just pursuing our start lines and finish lines, then, of course, you know, we, we appreciate that perspective. Okay. And what about Ironman? Like, I noticed that some of the races I've been doing internationally, stage races, Ironman has purchased some of those events. Have you been approached by Ironman? So, I don't know about approached. Um, I mean, I've been friends with some of the folks, the, the original founders or, or perpetuators of Ironman for a long, long time that have also got some mountain bike events that they produce here in the States. You know, of course, there's a couple of folks that have worked with them forever that live here in Tucson that are close friends too. But yeah, I think that there's mountain biking is at a very interesting point in its development, right? It's still a relatively young sport at you know, being founded in, say, the 80s and you know, making it you know, 40, 50 years old now, or th- what, 40 years old. And there's a lot of opportunity for it. So if someone say like mountain biking or Ironman wants to come into mountain biking, then I think you know, obviously it depends on how it unfolds. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the events that you've been participating in that they've acquired and how those have evolved. But you know, the more attention that can be you know, pushed on the mountain biking to a bigger audience to grow the, the participation in the sport, I think the better. You know, I don't know if you got win, but Spartan Race just purchased uh, La Ruta down in Costa Rica. Oh, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, is that the original stage race? Maybe? I don't know. I think, I think it might be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Roman, the guy that produces, it's a fantastic guy. We've only ever talked on the phone a few times, but he's just really charismatic. And I think he's got an exceptionally challenging event down there. And yeah, but I mean, to see other big companies like that, that they know events, right? Spartan produces a phenomenal event experience, whether it's mountain biking or not. Ironman produces a phenomenal event experience. Now mountain biking too, you know, but also obviously triathlon, but also, you know, they own rock and roll marathon and they own stuff all over the world at this point. So I think that, I don't think there's any harm in those guys coming in because they're just going to up the game. It's just a matter of, you know, I guess what's, what's your experience been with which events that, that you used to do or have done that they own now? Uh, It's actually been really good. You know, some people think it's a negative thing and I haven't had any negative experiences. I had a really interesting conversation on an airplane once. I randomly was sitting next to the CEO of Ironman on a plane (laughs) and I saw, you know, he came on the plane and he had like the Ironman logo on his backpack and all those things. And so I just like struck up a conversation and lo and behold, it was the CEO of Ironman. And I asked him about, you know, I noticed that you guys are acquiring mountain bike races and what are the criteria that you're looking for? And for them, they're they're looking for events that are going to be easy to scale and hold a lot of people and also events that are going to be attractive to the beginner, to somebody who isn't very good at technical riding or intimidated by technical riding. So I think that it's kind of a hard sweet spot to find. And I certainly have zero expertise in, in planning a race course. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that it's great. Like what you said, more people getting into mountain biking, the sport growing is great. And I think that 
different types of events are going to offer different things for people and people are going to be looking for different things. Like some people may really want a super technical event. Some people may not want that and they might just want to be able to like go out and be challenged just a little bit. Yeah. I think that it's fair for, I can understand why people would take issue with seeing operators like Ironman or Spartan come into and high events in mountain biking because they're passionate about their events. But I think the other side of that is that they've got to look at the opportunity for the events to grow and to thrive and maybe even um, up the level of the event yet even more. And so I'm glad to hear that you're supportive of it. I think that it should just mean bigger opportunities for mountain biking on a national and global level. I have another question that just popped in my mind. I actually saw it was on Facebook. I think it was uh, about having e-bike categories in races. Have you guys thought about that? Oh, yeah. That comes up every so often here at the office. Yeah, we're not, you know, I think there was a really big anti-e-bike e-book. Um, <laughs> there's a big anti-e-bike movement in the beginning, and I and it might not have been unfounded. I feel like the way that they entered the scene was pretty aggressive. But I do think that now that things seem to be in check as far as access and, and you know, we talk about uh, trail users and so forth. And, and I think that it's a very delicate environment. And so as long as e-bikes are going through the proper channels and giving proper time for those channels to establish the proper management of an access so that it doesn't undo the hard work of all of the advocacy that's been done for mountain biking, which has been significant over the last 40 years, then I think that there's an opportunity there for, for mountain biking. I think e-bikes allow for people to ride longer and later into life. And also, I think it allows people to enjoy trails in more you know, remote areas that maybe never would have gotten out there and into those parts of nature. And so, you know, there's a lot of different facets of where e-bikes make a lot of sense, but it all comes down to the management of the access for e-bikes and making sure that that does make sense first before anything else happens. Okay. And I want to ask about sponsorships because you guys have done such an incredible job having a lot of industry backing and also having non-bike industry sponsors. So like, what is your value proposition when you're going to these sponsors and how do you make them sustainable? <laughs> well, it, I guess maybe in the great words of Laird Knight, the founder of Granny Gear and 24 Hours in Moab, none of it's a handout. There's got to be a deliverable. You know, and we've had over a decade long relationship with Stan's No Tubes. And Maxis is going through their fourth renewal with us right now. So we're coming up on, I want to say, seven years with them. And they're tried and true sponsors. They understand who we're bringing together and how that allows their brand and their products to get out in front of people that use their, their brand or their products often and can appreciate the quality that they deliver. So I think that you know, we're looking for brand partners that, that can really get value out of the relationship with us whether it be because our participants and our sphere of influence is people that use those products or because our audience represents a demographic that they want to reach out to. For instance, a Yucateco hot sauce that joined us a couple of years ago and is renewing as well right now. You know, they're a hot sauce company that's taken an interest in mountain biking and they do it because they love our tribe. They, whether it's through, through marketing and seeing our tribe tag them in their posts when they talk about their product or on event weekends, and being able to weave their way into the you know the narrative of our audience's lifestyle, you know mountain bikers apparently there's a, a big enough audience in, in the mountain bike community that likes spicy food and, and flavored food, and so 
it works for them. They feel so welcomed by us. It's cool. So the value is, is it has to be there and it's got to be, you know, it's got to come through an association with us and a product of getting in front of our audience. And if that, if it can't deliver, then there shouldn't be a relationship there because it's going to end in, in both sides being frustrated. So it's important you know, when we sit down with brand partners in the, in the, maybe the courtship period to identify what it is that they really want and to talk honestly about whether or not we can deliver that. Yeah. And based on something you said earlier about beginners getting into the sport, I mean, there's so many different variables in mountain biking, suspension setup, tires, you know, understanding all these things and having the bike expo there, having maybe somebody's like, they just started mountain biking and they also just started racing. They can go to the Maxis tent and say, Hey, like, how do I know what tires to choose? Or they can go to stands and get a stands refresh, or they can get their, their shock, you know, set properly. Like, I think I would think that's a massive value add to you're adding value not only to the sponsor but also to the, these riders and you're creating a bridge for this relationship. Yeah, there's it's so often that people become loyal to the products they find that work for them best. And so oftentimes it's not about introducing a product to a participant, it's a chance for that brand to reach out and communicate with them. someone that's been loyal to them for, you know, x amount of years that just further values the opportunity to actually interact with the representative from that band. That goes so far. And, and like you said, the, the stands refresher is the ultimate win. And it's, it's so cool. People you know, show up on event weekend and you know, say, oh, I ran out of time last week. I was busy with work and family and everything else. And I didn't get to put in to freshen up my stands and it's been six months. <laughs> and they drop by the booth and you know, they, they hook them up real quick and then they have a great weekend. They don't have any flats and it's perfect, you know, and that, that's a level of loyalty that you don't get that everywhere in life, you know? So it's kind of fun when you do. Why do you think some races have trouble making money? Uh, I've noticed in BC in the last two or three years, the majority of the races are gone. And I think that part of it is because they're not making any money every year. They're going in the hole. So like why, why you guys seem to have it figured out. So why do you think it's so hard? I don't know. I've heard of an event or two in BC that's gone away. And I've heard that there's been, and, and of the, the couple I know about, they were awesome events. So I don't know what the story was behind them. I thought one of them was a promoter that had just decided to, to hang it up. That was tired. The other one, I'm not sure what the details were, but you know, the, the climate's constantly changing. And that's another part of that criteria of, of operating in a community where everyone wants to lean into it. So you know, it's really easy for permitting hurdles to prevent or prohibit, either prevent an event from happening or to prohibit it from being able to make money. And, you know, regardless of what anybody thinks about events, it's just another business and it has to make money. So if it can't, it can't sustain itself and it can't keep happening. So I think that these events are not, they're not high volume games. Like these events don't just pour millions of dollars into a bank account and, and everybody just laughs and walks away at the end of the weekend and says, that was phenomenal, like screws <laughs> duck or something. Um, instead, they're, from the beginning, it was, it was impressed upon me. I've, you know, I've been fortunate to be surrounded by very intelligent business people. And, and they basically said, like, you're in a cost containment game. Like, you cannot spend on anything that doesn't need to be spent on. And so we try to choose our battles wisely. We try to give the participant as much as possible. We try to charge them as little as possible. And we try to make it just really easy for them to say, yes, I want to come back next year. I had, you know, I got an amazing value or utility out of that experience. And so I think that, you know, what it boils down to is cost containment is, you know, being very critical of, of how you spend and where you spend so that there's at least enough left at the end of it to justify doing it again and or to sustain it. 
So I want to talk about the party and the festival atmosphere. What makes a good party? People. Just getting as many people into one spot as possible. I mean, these these events are kind of a, uh, to use another, you know, to use the same metaphor, they're, they're blank, a blank canvas. Um, you know, we, we, we have sort of structured the bones of the experience, but what makes it unique and fun for everybody is just when everyone comes together and they create the experiences between each other, whether it's the, you know, at the start line and, and rolling out together in the, in the critical mass start or yo-yoing on the course with a few people before you finally just start talking and become friends by the end of the event. Or, you know, at the post-event party in downtown Prescott or Grand Junction, listening to live music, jamming out and, you know, just knowing that everybody around you, thousands of people also did that ride that day or doing it the next day or did it the day before and are all there for the same reason, right? I mean, that's, you can't, just, you know, I don't know how to create that experience any other way. So it's all about just, you know, bringing people together and then letting them create the chemistry. Okay. And I'm going to use the last bit of time for some listener questions that were submitted and we'll get through as many as we can. <laughs> so some of them are going to be really quick answers and some of them might take a little longer. But uh, the first question is, when are you getting a whiskey sponsor? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we work at it a little bit each year. If we would stop drinking so much and start working harder. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, all in due time. We'd love to have a whiskey sponsor though. There's, uh, but it, it, you know, we're going to be selective because there's a lot of whiskeys out there. Yeah, and there, there's some good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Two more months and I can have some. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most difficult thing about race promotion and what are things that locals can do to help alleviate the stress of promoting races? So uh, to be supportive of the event. What can locals do? Just be very supportive, be engaged, whether it's riding in it, volunteering at it, or just showing up and having fun on the event weekend in the, the industry expo or at the, the live music or in the beer gardens. Really, I think everybody just leaning into the event and showing an, an interest and in supporting it at any level, even just speaking positive about it in circles in the community helps make the event happen each year. Okay. This question was actually asked twice in two different ways. One of the, it was asked as, how do you keep the experience authentic while creating pro-level events? And kind of an add-on to that is, how do you keep a good balance between racy and party in terms of atmosphere and seriousness? Again, it's a people element. So we really try not to promote the race side of our events because we know that the human nature is if you put 10 people on the start line, three of them, it just flows in their blood. They don't know any other way to, to be other than a race. And so we don't need to tell them it's a race. They're just going to go race. And, you know, another four of them are going to just try to beat their best time or their friend. And, and a couple, you know, a few more of them are probably just going to strive to get to the finish line. And so we really promote the participant side of it. We stay away from the race side of it. That said, we know that we've got pro category and a big cash purse. And so when we talk about those items, we specifically talk about those items. And, and that way it, it cultivates an environment that we want, a really welcoming, inclusive environment. And, and I'd like to think that we've been really successful in that and maintaining it as we've grown and keeping those values you know, front and present in our promotions. Mm -hmm. And the other was, how do you keep it authentic while creating these professional level events? Just make sure that each community gets to shine. You know, I mean, we, I'm not a, a mountain biker personally because I'm worried about first. I'm a mountain biker because I get to go to some of the most beautiful places on earth and, and be submerged in cultures that are just broad and diverse. 
And, you know, whether it's going to Carson City and, you know, hanging out at the Old Globe Saloon, one of the oldest saloons in Nevada, after a ride or, you know, riding up to Lake Tahoe and seeing that, you can't have that in, you know, somewhere else, like in a different state in a different place. And so, you know, leaning on those local experiences is what people really want. And so we want to make sure that we're, we're delivering on those things before we worry about, you know, some sort of homogenized you know, element of life. I mean, that's just not what we crave. And so you know, we, we want to give people what we think is, is cool. So that's where I think we just, we always, you know, we go to a new community and we, the first thing we do is look for the cool local taco shop or the local, you know, like, you know, or pub or something, just because that's what we, we want other people to experience. How come there isn't a citizen's fat tire crit? <laughs> other these than are, like hos- the... hospitals, no, not, <laughs> no. Yeah. These are the user-generated questions, yeah, right? Yeah, these are all the listener questions, yeah. That's awesome. Listener questions, yeah. A citizen's fat tire crit. Well, there is the the clunker crit that's free for the whole community that leads out. It's the first race of the, you know, the crits, I guess. So, uh, you know, maybe there's a citizen's component. Yeah, we, we look at the pro fat tire crit on Friday. The pros have two stages. They do the fat tire crit on Friday, and it's 20-minute plus three laps very fast, very high energy, very spectator friendly race on Friday evening. Very painful. And then you do the backcountry race. Yeah, very painful for sure. It's fast. It's amazing how fast y'all go. And then of course the second stage is the backcountry event on Sunday. And we just look at it as a chance for all of the citizens to join together and cheer and to bring our tribe fully together for the weekend as we drop into the Epic Ride series of that weekend. So we've just really never considered doing a uh, a citizen's crit but sounds like maybe we should think about it yeah someone someone definitely wanted that i have three more how do you keep riders safe from spectators in those crits self-preservation we we lean really heavily on self-preservation that that particular gene that every human is born with you know more or less of depending on who they are no we have head railing and we have of course marshals and police officers and streets departments uh, from each community represented that are all helping with the safety of the event. And also just, you know, each other, you know, oftentimes there's a, you know, a crosswalk and people that are cheering at that crosswalk, you know, even though there's maybe a course ambassador or a streets department person on the other side of it, there's usually people all around that are kind of keeping tabs on each other saying, Hey, you know, they're going to come through, wait a minute, then you can go. What do you miss most about the early years of your races? Huh. I would say I'm, I'm a little bit of a uh, hesitant leader. I love the nuts and bolts of these events. Like I was just talking to someone here in the office the other day, and they said it's, it's, they were kind of, I guess they said they were impressed by being 21 years in and how passionate I still seem to be about it. And I don't really know any other way. Like, I love mountain biking. <laughs> and I love to watch other people experience it and have success with it. I just know what it's, it's done for me. And so like, uh, yeah, I think that growing the company, sometimes I miss, uh, getting to do different bits and pieces of it because I just have enjoyed how those bits and pieces of the company interact with people and and to see them have success and so forth from those, whether it's just customer service emails, right. And talking through somebody, what the experience might look like so that they can go, yeah, I think I want to do this. And then talking to them after the event and then going, I'm so glad I did it. Like, that's the coolest, that's the most rewarding thing ever to have that interaction with someone, right? 
Yeah, it's like the purpose and the reason why you started in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, here's the last one, and it, it it might be a hard question, but it's a quick answer. <laughs> what is the best team name you've seen from 24 Hour Racing? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, what a start! Weapons of ass destruction. <laughs> that team's been back probably for over a decade now. <laughs> well, heck, you know you should know Dave Million. He's ridden in every single 24 Hour Mule Club. <laughs> He's the only one who, uh, what else? Four hot dogs and an onion ring. It's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it, it gets pretty, uh, there's a lot and we publish them every year. So maybe the best thing I can do is just point everybody to the 24 hours in the old Pueblo Facebook page and tell them to tune in over the next few weeks and they'll, they'll see a bunch of funny team names. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know that people, of anyone could get value from this, a race promoter, a new cyclist, an experienced racer. Like there's a lot that we covered and thanks so much for sharing everything. Do you want to point out that there are different event pages for all the different events so people can go check those out? Cause we are so early in 2020. Sure. Yeah. So first Sonia, thank you so much for inviting me to be on. This has been fun. We don't get to talk a lot these days. So uh, this has just been all the better that we get to catch up a little bit in the process. So let's see, our, our next event is just a month away, the 24 Hours in the Old Pueblo, presented by Tucson Medical Center. It's on President's Weekend each year. Registration opens October 1st and fills up within about an hour, so you have to anticipate it. <laughs> the next event in our portfolio for 2020 is the Whiskey Off-Road. It's the last weekend of April each year in Prescott, Arizona. And then following the Whiskey Off-Road is the Grand Junction Off-Road in Grand Junction, Colorado. It's the last weekend of May this year followed by the Carson City Off-Road in Carson City, Nevada, the capital city of Nevada. And that event is the last weekend of June. And then uh, we take a little bit of a break and then go to Northwest Arkansas, to Bentonville and Bella Vista, Arkansas for the Oz Trails Off-Road on Columbus Day weekend, which is the second weekend in October. It's important, I should point out, that the Whiskey Off-Road is already almost 70% full and Grand Junction is already uh, half full. Carson City is approaching half full, and, and Bentonville is, is we haven't won that one up yet. So, but it's registration is open for all of them at this point. Awesome. Thank you so much. And people can go to the Epic Rides website as well if they want to find all that, everything all, about all the events there too. Yeah, epicrides.com or just search us out on social media um, at Epic Rides. Cool. Thanks, Todd. Likewise. Thanks. After listening to that episode, don't you guys just want to sign up for some Epic Rides events? I am definitely going to be at the Bentonville Off-Road in October. I'm hoping to be at the Carson City one in June, but I don't know how that's going to work with breastfeeding and the race taking more than four hours. That's something that I'm trying to think about and plan for, but it's only a short-term logistical challenge. But definitely go to some of the Epic Rides events. Check out their Instagram and their Facebook. These guys are awesome and they're doing really great things for the mountain bike community. I hope you guys have a great week and wishing you all the best success in your training adventures. And we'll see you right back here in just a few days.